This episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, it's guaranteed to be either a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover on the service. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch, and instead, you'll actually be watching something great. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Filmstage. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Filmstage for a whole month of great cinema for free. Protests are still continuing in huge numbers around the world against institutional violence. There are many ways to get involved, including petitions, donations, participating in those protests, or simply becoming educated about those issues. One great resource for finding these outlets continues to be blacklivesmatters.card.co, which includes a large number of petitions and funds that need help at this time. Again, that's blacklivesmatters with an s dot c a r r d dot c o. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Michael Snydell, and you are listening to Intermission, Episode 7, uh, which is about uh, Louis Bunuel's 1970 film, uh, Tristana. This is a podcast where a, uh, it, where a guest picks one art house, foreign, or experimental film that's available on streaming, and we talk about it uh, at, at length. Um, it, Today, as I said, we're talking about Tristana, which is available along with maybe uh, at least a half dozen other uh, Bunuels on the Criterion channel until the end of the month. I was also told uh, by uh, a person online that it's also available on Canopy, which I know quite a few people have that as well. Um, I'm here today with uh, Will Ross from the Film Formally podcast. Will, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Will Ross from the Film Formally podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a filmmaker. I'm based in Vancouver in Canada. How would you uh, describe the general conceit of Film Formally? Oh, yeah. Uh, Film Formally is a podcast where... Every episode, we try to zero in on a particular idea or technique in a film or sometimes a series of films or sometimes just broadly. So one episode, we might talk about the idea of cinemascope as an aspect ratio and how it's used in modern films, especially modern blockbusters. And then another day, we might talk more specifically about a particular technique like worldizing sound in American graffiti. That's a technique that Walter Murch invented. So uh, our, our sort of idea is that a lot of film podcasts we listen to, we realize that a lot of them kind of go a mile wide and an inch deep, which is fine. So we try to kind of go an inch wide and a mile deep is the idea as a counterbalancing scenario. So yeah, and, and sometimes it's it gets pretty specific and even a little bit academic, but we try to always keep it really, really accessible for anyone. We've got an episode coming up with Peter Labuza about 
montage and pre-code Hollywood films. Uh, and then other times, you know, we'll just be tongue in cheek or goofing off or we'll just be venting our grievances. So I'm going to have to listen to that uh, Peter Labusa. Le- Le- uh, Jeez, Peter Labou's episode, who uh, who has his own podcast, uh, Cinephiliacs, which I highly uh, recommend. Terrific podcast. But before we get to our main film, I have to uh, give my thanks to uh, our sponsors, and that is uh, the wonderful uh, Mubi. And uh, Mubi is a curated streaming service, uh, and it has an ever-changing collection of hand-picked films from new directors to award winners. And uh, there is a new film every day, but Mubi also has a, a huge uh, library that uh, collects uh, previous uh, previous films, and uh, they're all great as evidence of that. Today's film is actually the first two episodes of Out One, uh, the masterpiece from uh, Jacques Rivette. And uh, so they're going to be doing the entire 13-hour film. And um, as a bonus, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum actually has a accompanying essay What with uh, the um, first two episodes today, which is called uh, Pleasures and Perils, Improvisation in Out One. And uh, as Mubi describes Out One, uh, two theater troops rehearse uh, Asikiles, a young deaf mute, wants to uncover a mysterious secret society. A young woman seduces men in order to rob them. And as the characters pass crisscross throughout the film's puzzle box structure, a portrait of post May 68 Paris and its dash dreams emerge. And uh, now today we can get to our um, main film, which uh, is the aforementioned uh, Tristana. So. Will, to, to start, why did you pick this movie to talk about today? I think Tristana's got to be, like, I think for most people, Tristana's, like, maybe, like, the 10th movie you think about when you think about Bunuel. And yet, I think, I really think that it's arguably the best entry point to really get into and understand Bunuel. I, I think, like a lot of people who took a film studies class in university. My first experience with Bunuel was with Un Chien Andalou. And it's such an aggressively experimental film. And yet I think it's an outlier in his filmography. But anyway, I, I saw that and then I, I took a dutiful interest in him as one of the foremost surrealists of the medium and watched L'Age d'Or and was, and just could not get into it. <laughs> I think partly I was just too young. Uh, watched Las Hordes' Lamb Without Bread because it's a, a bit more straightforward in its sort of political structure. And then I sampled him over the years and I enjoyed some of what I saw, but it's really tough to kind of crack this mixture of, you know, thorny, super dense social and psychological analysis, his really spare aesthetics and then these occasional flourishes of like really bizarre or fantastical imagery or ideas. And Tristana was such a turning point for me where I had seen less bizarre or surreal Bunuel films before, like Las Olvidados. But Tristana is a film that is just about, you know, four or five people and their intersections. It's very dramatically simple. It's almost stage play like in 
its narrative presentation. It's mostly free of surrealism other than a dream sequence that is explicitly acknowledged as being a dream by the characters and, and well compartmentalized there. And what really clicked with me with Tristana was, oh, this spare aesthetic is a result of Benuel's focus. Every, nothing is wasted in a Benuel film. And when you receive Benuel's films as less, you know, bizarre matrixes of pseudo-surrealistic work and more as really carefully structured intellectual statements on politics, on psychology, then it suddenly becomes a lot easier to take them in. You just realize, oh, okay, this is just a film where nothing is wasted. And frankly, I think Tristana is a good one to go into because you can kind of ignore his surrealist reputation to a large extent. This gets into something that really bothers me about so much discourse around Benuel, <laughs> which is... Let's get into it. <laughs> that his reputation as a surrealist is... It's not that it's unearned, because absolutely in Shan Andalou is a pivotal surrealist work, not just in film, but in, in the general surrealist movement. But so often he is presented first and foremost through the lens of Bunuel the Surrealist, when there are so many of his films where surrealism is an ancillary element or a non-existing element. Not only is this a part of the word surrealist just being taken to mean anything that is bizarre, maybe a little bit off-putting and unexplained, but it points to an unwillingness to engage more directly with the actual texts that the director is putting in front of us. And so a big theme throughout his career becomes this idea that people are too quick to use ideology as an intellectual crutch. People are too quick to put forth an ideology and use it to justify their own moral stances or their own life's work. Not the sense that ideology is useless, which I don't think Benuel believed. It can so often be used as a mask for immorality or even travesty or more simply and maybe more in line with Benuel's specific narrative interests, perversity. And Tristana is such a good outline of that where Tristana, the movie, cannot be, <laughs> cannot be easily solved by any of the ideologies that it glances towards. You know, whether we're talking about fem feminism, socialism, uh, it is not pro-fascist in any way or does not present a both sides case, but you cannot resolve it within fascism. You cannot resolve it within any single idea that it brings up, Catholicism, atheism, whatever you want to say. It is very resistant to those ideas. It's willing to play within them, but it's very resistant to those ideas as a governing force that allows us to solve it. You know? <laughs> but I, I think that that's almost a, a good place to, to start with Tristana in the sense that it is, it has its characters so plainly uh, acknowledge their, uh, you know, their contradicting worldviews. It, like it, it's, it's not, um, you know, in the same way, like a uh, Pasolini's, uh, you know, the Decameron, like it's, it's not, uh, it, it doesn't shy away from bluntness. The fact that he's standing behind decadence that's being taken away from him. Like it's, um, I, I think that's what is, is almost confusing about this movie is I'm unable to almost accept what's right in front of me because I want to believe that he's playing some long game, but he's playing the short game. Like it's, 
But I, I think then what is so interesting about this one is the layers of power imbalances we have here. You know, like I almost thought of it by the end of being like a spiritual Munchausen's that they're both kind of inflicting on, on each other. And uh, let me go back to the plot and maybe I can extrapolate from there to make some more sense. As we begin, um, Tristana's mother dies and she becomes the ward of this uh, Don Lope, who's uh, Fernando Ray. And... You know, I think to speak to other Boonwell right away, I mean, I think this has some similarities with <laughs> Denuve's other Boonwell film, Belle du Jour, um, in the sense that in the sense that you have this this woman who's almost uh, a, a yes woman from the from the word go even as she detests everything that's said to her in kind of this uh, accepted uh, condescension. Um, the thing about it, though, is that unlike Be- Belle de Jour, which seems to at least find some type of uh, conflicted freedom in her a double life, it's speaking to your inability, or not inability, but the difficulty to, to decode this, it's never quite clear what Tristana wants. Yes, yeah. I think it's heavily suggestive. It's a mystery to her as well. In fact, I would p- speculate, theorize, uh, but not quite posit, that Tristana not knowing what she wants is the guiding force behind so many decisions she makes in the film, which I, I would say in a lot of ways, the film is about a woman who is not allowed to have her own desires and she ends up inventing her own and it manifests in perversity, right? In, in, in her developing cruelty and her losing innocence. And I think that's, that's a major similarity to Belle de Jour. Yeah, I, I, yes, that, that is definitely the case. But I, I would say this, this does feel in conversation in that and, and almost rejecting, <laughs> almost rejecting that narrative as well as, you know, pat and, and simplistic. Like, I, I, I think what... Yeah is particularly interesting about um, about Fernando Ray's, uh, Ray's performance is, you know, not only does it alternate between him being anger and angry and very calm, but his own worldview is a, is a bundle of contradictions about purity and corruption. Like he, you know, almost gives the appearance of a libertine or early on when he's talking to these other aristocratic men. But then he also has, you know, certain rules about seduction that only apply to him. Like if if Tristana ever broke those, that would be like uh, violating a sacred unspoken. Well, not even unspoken, <laughs> spoken. code. Yeah, the, I think the difficulty of the film is how you make sense of it. We know what's going on. We even have a good idea of why it's going on how we make sense of it within our own ideas of morality, how the world works, how ideology intersects with our, inter- with our day-to-day lives, that's the hard part that's pinned... That, that, that's so hard to pin down in a lot of Benoel's works, but I think in Tristana, it's laid so bare in front of you. Like the last... Uh, maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit. Those last 36 minutes when she, of course, comes back 
two years later from that train ride away, she is such a devastatingly like different person <laughs> in a way that is at once very easy to understand because, of course, her getting to run off with a good-looking young man of her choice who loves her and wants to be with her doesn't end up satisfying her, partly because Don Lope has been successful with all of his speeches about, oh, you know, um, um, love, true love is freedom, you know, marriage is, is, is the death of love. And, you know, and anyone who loves you would allow you to be free. And it just screws her up, probably for life. Like, there's no, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle, and it makes her into a cruel and even more irrational and erratic person. And what do you, what do, you do with that, right? I mean, we can, we can certainly put forward ideas of patriarchal dominance and feminism to explain how she got there, but those ideas are less sufficient to point to what to do next, what to do with us once we've been broken by that perversity. Because... Inevitably, that moral defeat, you can't just ideology your way out of it. You know, what is broken is broken, and it's cyclical. Yeah, it, it is very cyclical, and I, I think even Horatio, uh, Francis Nero's character, we've spoken about a little bit, even is, you know, it's it's not quite a, a mirror, but... If anything, it's a more it's a more passive representation of that certain chauvinism that uh, Don Lopez shows. I, I mean, I, I, you know, to to speak about him as as a lover almost feels disingenuous considering how they meet. Like he's a he's a painter who is, uh, you know, doing a portrait of someone in some kind of runes, which is already such a. <laughs> Such a, a wonderful image, but like he's then like you, you know. After I finish this, you can be my next, uh, my next model. From there, we're we're then jumping at some unspecified time forward in that relationship, where you know where she is uh, absconding uh, Don Lopez's home and and going to see her, you know, her par- her paramour. But as soon as she it gives the possibility that she's not this, you know, pure, innocent uh, woman that he, you know, can't wisp away. <laughs> then he he displays the same um, possessiveness, savagery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, I mean, he turns on her very quickly. But I think, I don't know, for me, he's the closest to a truly likable character in the movie, partly because That's fair. <laughs> he's the only one who's willing to reform. I mean, before that scene is over, he gets angry at her, he tells her to leave, and then before she leaves, he accepts her and starts to try to work through things with her. And, I mean, his, his flexibility ends up, unfortunately, getting turned on its head as well. I mean, there's a scene where Don Lope confronts him and challenges him to a duel, and he just punches Don Lope yeah. in the face and says, no. But then when they return two years later from their train ride, when Tristana has a tumor in her leg that is inevitably going to result in her being amputated, the reason they've returned is because she can't stop thinking about Don Lope. And so by the time they come back, while Franco Nero's character, 
Horatio has become much more pleasant, much more polite, much more accommodating. The first thing he says is, if you still want to do that duel, I'm up for it. Because clearly he's realized the only way to get Horatio out of her thought, out of her life is to kill him. And by then, of course, it's too late because Don Lope has changed his mind about the nobility of dueling to the death. Well, I, see, I think I even view that it, the interpretation of that reform is false from the beginning. Because, I mean, you already spoke about the, the scene where he punches Don Lope. But I, I mean, I love it as a gesture that's caught on film. But when he hands the cane to these these men and and you know i i think some of that does speak to you know uh the culture's deep respect for you know uh an elderly class or an aristocratic uh, excuse me aristocratic class but i still take those things just as much as that scene where he's uh you know talking to don lope about helping him you know i think the language he uses is something like you know she's never been lacking uh, I, I'm not a rich man, but she's never been lacking. Um, and, and the impression I get there, which was not explicit, is that he needed someone with more money. I, as you're saying, that's not really the case. But at least in that sense, it, it's then again that like false nobility. Like in that sense, I almost find um, I almost find uh, the the maid. Uh, more interesting because she or not necessarily more interesting, but she is in, in fact almost along for the ride. And the, and the fact that she doesn't almost have to wrestle with her agency gives her a freedom that no one else is, is afforded uh, by the by the fact that she is almost told what whatever to do. I, I, I find it truly fascinating that she's torn between these two people, like the the scene where um Don Lopez like to Tristana clean my shoes and she decides to throw them in the garbage because it's after she's had it. And then the, the maid comes to take the shoes out of the garbage, um, dump the dinner plates and then put the shoes back (laughs) after asking permission. And, And I think, I think that stuff is, is again in, in so many contradictions, even to, the the potential like uh, patriarchal radicalism of something like Belle de Jour, which you know also feels like a you know a, I, I can't remember if it's before or after, but you know comparable to something like John Dealman, like a, so much so much of and and this right. doesn't this doesn't feel like that in a way I can't quite pinpoint. Yeah, yeah, I I, I mean this might be a bit of a non sequitur, but I'd love to sort of Please. transition a little bit into talking about, I mean, th- visually, I think this is probably my favorite Benuel. And so much of that is because it's, it's c- color control, I think, oh, and costuming, costuming yeah. are extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinarily great <laughs> costuming. And my favorite, I mean, like uh, the most obvious one is Tristana, who, I mean, the entire film is, there are very dark blue tones, there are browns, there are grays, there are beiges, there are occasionally yellows and uh, kind of Mm. brownish reds. And Tristana is, more than any other character, frequently dressed in a way that 
allows her to be subsumed uh. into her environment. You know, when we first meet Tristana, and for the first, I, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes of the film, she's wearing black, she's in mourning. And it's an interesting choice that there's such an emphasis on her as an innocent figure, but she's wearing black instead yes. of white. And I think part of that is because white is not... I, 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 I'm of generally of the opinion that we tend visually not to associate white with blankness or a lack of something. We trend, you know, it tends to be like white hot, very present, very, you know, you can't take your eyes away. And black is the hole that things are put into. And so scene by scene, she is subsumed by her environment. But what's more, the fact that these are the clothes she chooses to wear, there's an, I think, implicit idea there that she kind of, not maybe consciously, but on a certain level, willfully is subsumed by her world, by her environment. I mean, my favorite costume that she wears is this black and red um, um, tartan dress that she has, and she wears it most notably in a couple of scenes where there's bricks all around her, so she blends into the bricks, and when she wears it indoor, there's an emphasis in the set dressing of these uh, red and white tartan uh, um, um, curtains around the room. And so over and over, she winds up being defined by her environment more than defined by herself. Mm. It's one of the last scenes in the movie. It's after she is yes. amputated. but Or maybe it's not one of the last scenes, but yeah, you know yes. where I'm going with this. But she ends up exposing herself to the mutant deaf boy who is sort of an ancillary figure throughout the film. He tries to come inside and, and flirt with her physically, and she kicks him out. And then she walks onto the balcony. He makes a gesture of opening a blouse, and she <laughs> immediately and happily opens up, and she has just the cruelest, <laughs> most self-satisfied look on her face. And, I mean, the, the tragedy of it is that she's clearly not <laughs> inwardly a happy person, but on the other hand, it's the first moment that her dress is not defining her and implicitly that she's not defined by her environment. And so the fact that this, instead of titillating the, uh, the mute man, Saturno, he's the son of Saturna, it can get a little auditorily confusing, I imagine. But the fact that this frightens him, I think, is really important. And we never see her body, and I don't think Benoel's trying to suggest that her body is like some Cronenbergian grotesquery, but he's frightened by being the only person, I think, who she has willingly exposed herself to in a real way, in, a, in showing what's underneath everything. And, and, and him being a man who moments ago tried to assert his own dominance over her, he finds that really frightening. Yeah, no, that's, that is a great point in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the blending and then the, uh, uh, the, excuse me, uh, standing apart uh, from those in environments. I, I, I just want to put out an aesthetic detail in the scene you're talking about. I love how the crutches almost have, the, the top of them almost have like a, a velvet pattern. Right. Like it, it's a it's a very odd, like <laughs> it's a very odd detail you don't expect on, on the top of the uh, top of the crutches. Like, you know, which also signals her her certain like, 
ascent of wealth as well, which is something <laughs> something we haven't discussed whatsoever, is that uh, Don Lope begins the film in decline to such an extent that he can insult his sister <laughs> in a single moment and a moment later ask for ask for money. So, 10,000 pesetas, please. Yes. <laughs> so, and so to the point where he's both maybe not destitute, but his his life has become such that he has to sell, you know, his silverware. He has to, um, you know, he has a reputation that others might say something about him and then make a joke about it. Like, I, I, I think that is something, too, that that complicates his his uh, almost like brazen stubbornness <laughs> about anything. Like he has no need. I mean, speaking of the word reform, he would have no need to ever reform. Like, like in a way it's like oh. comparable to something like the headless woman to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Yeah. Like to the extent that he, his views change, it is entirely a matter of what's convenient to him. And at the start of the film, him being in favor of the powerless against the powerful, <laughs> he won't point out to the police which way the, the thief went. Yes. You know, all of that is, is pure convenience. He has a conversation with a bunch of his mates at a table where he's like, hey, I believe in all of the commandments except the ones about sex. And then he goes on to say, but, you know, like, you know, I mean, there's limits. You don't want to, like, uh, have sex with a married woman or anything or, or anything like that or with your friends. Uh, but other than that, it's all fair game. And it's so obvious that the reason he doesn't like to haggle, you know, he doesn't really care about money. He doesn't mind selling all of his things to get more money. The only reason for all that is because he doesn't care about that stuff. The reason he's okay with not having a moral code about sex is that he really wants to have sex. He's a perverse, old, horny dude. And then the minute he wants to have sex with someone where it doesn't fit into his moral code, because he's like, you know, you also shouldn't have sex with someone who's, you know, innocent and pure. And then it immediately cuts to Tristana looking at a sheet of music and I was like, okay, so <laughs> you're going to immediately go back on that. And in fact, he's probably already got it in his head by that point that he's going to start making a pass at her slash obligating her to be his mistress slash weird wife slash like, I mean, honestly, let's go there. Like he basically makes her his sex <laughs> servant, if not sex slave. He's just, he's maybe the least likable character <laughs> in any Benwell film I've seen. Not because he does the most despicable things, but because he's the most brazenly hypocritical person about the despicable things that he does and about his supposed moral virtues. Yeah, I, I think you do have something comparable in uh, Diary of a, a Chambermaid with um, uh, and Montiel. Yes. You know um, this this idea of the this idea of the old man who it recurs. Yes, yeah, uh, multiple times, especially I, in his late career. I, but I, I wanted to say, though, that um, I, I, I think this this does certainly recur throughout his career. But I, I think this kind of this is conflicted in a way that some of those aren't like you. I think Diary of a Chambermaid, for instance, is not necessarily I feel like objectively some of Bunuel's dialogue and the textures that he's working with are unabashedly didactic, you know, in a way. 100%. But I found him watchable in a way 
that I, I wasn't expecting. Because as you're saying, he's a, you know, he's a static character in a way. But yeah. his, you know, delusions of, of nobility are so deep rooted. <laughs> like you can't only speak yeah. to money. You can't only speak to him living in a society where he feels he deserves a gaze. Like it, it's coming from so many different directions of absurdity, but it's also, you know, uh, communicated with such a, <laughs> a, a like a, uh, a sobriety. I, I think that's uh, that was something that was continually coming to my head is more so than so many of the the Boonwells, at least I have experience with there. There isn't a freewheeling quality to this. It's so precise and, and, and meticulous. And I, I, I would say this about Don Lopez. Tell me if you think this is fair. I would say he's he's extremely dislikable, but it's not that he's sympathetic per se, but he's pitiable, right? Like I, at, at root, this is, this is a pit, this is a pitiful old man. So it's easy to pity him. And I, I think that's, that's something that, I mean, uh, so many of his characters, including his old men are, are pitiful, but to me, especially sure. him, he's in such willful self delusion about what's going on that it's so easy to like, pity him for the fact that of course this guy will never be happy <laughs> at the rate he's going you can imagine i mean personally hey folks silver lining i can imagine franco nero's character coming out of everything and like making a better life for himself after this <laughs> i hope that guy i hope that guy gets uh, gets on okay sure i'm I, i'm i'm now trying to think if other than the one confrontation with his sister and then after the funeral where a man comes to him and was like, you know, a combination of I'm sorry for your loss and congratulations, which I, which I loved. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to think if we ever get an actual uh, coherent perception of what people think of him, you know, other than, you know, a bystander who's like, that old man was just uh, pushed or, or, you know, punched. Like, I I, I don't think uh, Boonwell is willing to give us any indication of whether that uh, that uh, pitiability, is that a word? Pitiability is, um, is universal uh, among the people watching him. Even when people say they admire him, there's caveats, right? Well, are you saying that because it's socially acceptable <laughs> to say that you admire this this weird, horny dude? But, I mean, so much is left to our judgment. I think there's some suggestion going on that that he's socially pitied or well-liked in that... And I think he engineers this as a character in that he is he constantly sells his old belongings in order to continue to facilitate his lifestyle without having to do actual work. But he absolutely hates haggling. If someone offers him something for it, he will take the first offer, even if it is financially detrimental to himself. I think part of that comes from him having a real distaste for the idea of money, which of course is, is very easy to do (laughs) when you're rich, but it also comes from a desire to be liked by everyone he comes into contact with. So when he walks into a cafe, 
to see all his buddies he sees all the time. He's like, why did you, why did you guys all get quiet? Oh, it's okay if you're making fun of me. We all make fun of all of you when you're out of the room. <laughs> and everything is just designed around like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm cool with everything. <laughs> I'm a cool guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he was well-liked slash pitied by people in and outside his social sphere, if only because one of the only things he truly does seem to work on in his life is engineering what other people think of him. Hmm. I, I think that's... Yeah, I mean, I think he is certainly manicuring his his behavior for, you know, that, I guess, outside perception again. But I, I do think... Uh, one thought that I had, you know, to speak of, you know, the prevalence of different forms of religion uh, within Bunuel, I was thinking about how Don Lope is almost uh, devout about systems. He's he's devout about at least uh, about systems that he has operated in and probably shouldn't operate in anymore. Again, to speak to another misconception about Bunuel, there's almost more taboo and kink in <laughs> violating those systems, uh, subverting expectation, I, I guess, is that those systems don't fall <laughs> into any recognizable understanding. They are, you know, they're about the aristocracy, uh, you know, being able to live outside the lines, about having servants, about being able to uh, take impressionable women as as their wife. But, like, you know, it, it's not like we ever see him uh, have a job. It's not like we're even seeing these other men exist. I think it's notable even that, uh, uh, that Horatio is, is a painter, which is, is something that, you know, as much as he says he's not a, a rich man, to even have the only thing approaching a job be something creative um, is even more an, a, of a slap in the face of any type of, you know, um, capitalist implication or anything along those lines. But I do find that. Uh, to be d distinct uh, in a film that is, you know, with a character who says he has no use for money, obsessed with money and obsessed with what that affords him. Yes, he doesn't like money. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good way to put it, but he is obsessed with it, as so many characters in Benwell films are, because it enables a particular way of life. Um, he's obsessed even with his distaste for money. He's dogmatic about his distaste for money. And then, of course, uh, I mean, as much as we've talked about Tristana changing and a little bit about him changing, Don Lope changes so dramatically in the last half hour of this film. I mean, by the time she comes back, he's bragging about, like, remember when I had to sell all this stuff just to scrape by a living? And I, now I can buy it all back with stuff to spare thanks to the inheritance money I got. And uh, Tristana comes back, and shortly before she's getting her leg amputated, the doctor says, you know, clear conscience can help with these things. How about you bring in a priest? And he's like, I will never bring a priest into this home. And sure enough, later, he's replaced his prior uh, cafe buddies with, you know, having dinner with priests and trying to convince them to get 
Tristana to here's the other turnaround, marry him. Appropriately, the whole notion of sin is something that, you know, is not only discussed repeatedly, but it's a word that Don Lope, you know, again, to speak of a certain certain pleasure he gets out of indulging these. I mean, he loves the the idea of communicating this lecherousness to other people, even as, uh, again, obviously he's, you know, even early on almost seemed so infirmed that he actually had the opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure how that would go for him, but let's put it that way. Uh, But I, I do think that is a good way to transition into, you know, these, these transformations, like uh, to speak s- specifically to Don Lope, I, I would, but I love the whole, uh, the whole pacing of, let's say, after that train, because I, I, I was thinking, all right, are we going to follow this? And this is going to be kind of a a, a parade of miseries that her, like, I, I have to be honest, like, I was totally thinking like, oh, God, this is going to be like uh, Knights of um, Kabiria. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, <laughs> it's only be- right. begun for her. But immediately I, I, you cut to two years ahead and uh, then this sequence where he's at the table and haggard and yeah, props to the to the makeup work, by the way. Um, oh, my they God. Look, they look um, really convincingly older in. Yeah. In just I mean, it's not only the, you know, more bushy beard and or, or more uh, full bodied <laughs> beard. That's uh that Don Lope has, but also uh, Tristana, like, you know, that chip on her shoulder is just visible. Well, it's, it's honestly pretty insane how accurate they were in predicting the way that Catherine Deneuve would age (laughs) to how she actually aged. Like, sure. It looks like Bunuel, like put down the cameras and picked it up (laughs) 10 years later at a certain point. It's extraordinary how good the makeup is at not only aging, but as you said, at, at, at characterizing how they're, how they're progressing through this stage of life. Oh, I have these other notes I want to get at, but like, I don't know if, no, I, no, you know what? Now it's a good time. Let's, let's oh, talk about it. Sure. So, I mean, the last half hour to an extent is, it's not the parade of miseries you would certainly expect, but it is, it is <laughs> quite the parade of miseries. The last half hour of the film. Every, every victory is inverted, <laughs> and even the new victories that happen are almost immediately inverted, or at least uh, 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 thrown into disrepair. One thing I want to talk about in relation to that, and uh, all these things going wrong, all these people being unhappy, and maybe most notably, almost all these people being so cruel, yeah. is the question of misanthropy. Hmm. And, and this is kind of, this is this is an interesting subject to me when people bring it up about filmmakers, but I'm never quite sure how to approach it because I don't think being critical means necessarily being misanthropic. But I mean, there's certainly a through line in Benoit's cinema of exposing human foibles, and he very rarely passes up a chance to problematize a given character. Hmm. Does that make him misanthropic? I mean, an interesting uh, com- point of comparison for him might be Lars von Trier, who is one of the only filmmakers, 
you know, major filmmakers at least, who I, I feel pretty confident in saying I do feel is at least somewhat misanthropic. I don't think that necessarily is, is a detriment to his films, depending on which one of his films we're talking about. But like when I think of Benwell, I don't think of him as mean-spirited or, or, or hateful or spiteful at all. Angry, certainly, but and I, I'm not sure quite how to unpack that idea, though. But Tristana is such a good example of it at the same time. That is interesting. I mean, it's not only um, it's not only someone like Lars von Trier, but I even think of you know people who've been very vocal about Boonwell's influence. You know, people like Roy Anderson and sure. um, and, and Yorgos Lanthimos, and you know those same accusations kind of dog them as I as I think about it. Yeah, but I I think you're right that the the misanthropy is is not i don't think it's ever foregrounded in, in which is see that seems weird to say because <laughs> yeah. so much of the last section of this film is her losing that leg as as a cruel joke yeah i mean it's a joke on like before that like i think don lope even says you know like the only way to keep a woman still is to like take away her leg and lock her in the room or like, or like to break a woman's leg and lock her in a room. And I think there's a couple other subtle little foreshadowing instances. So it's, it's a joke on a certain level. And like that, her, her false leg is like thrown surprisingly into the frame in a couple of cuts. Yes. And I, I don't think there's much doubt that Bunuel is intending us to find this, or at least he finds it perversely funny this idea of yes. the false leg that just gets like scattered around the room. Is that yeah, misanthropic? No, I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, my gut instinct says no, but I don't know if that's just cause I really like the guy's films. I, I, yeah, no, I'm going to say no. I, I think you are right. That ah, yes, uh, validate those things. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are right uh, about uh, that certain comedy and, I'm going to potentially out myself here as, as someone who shouldn't have find, found something sympathetic, but <laughs> you know, it's, it's a relatively unconflicted vengeance <laughs> at the end of this movie. <laughs> like it, it's, it's not something, you know, that lingers in, in your throat <laughs> or anything. Well, oh, when she murders him. I would s- <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> the mur- we're talking like, about the murder. <laughs> No, I I don't know. There's just like it's it's odd even, you know, to go back to the contemporaries I mentioned, you know, I think of a Lanthimos like the end of the the lobster, which ends with like a a very uh, to the point and, you know, also a to the point joke and a a metaphor for itself. Um, Yeah, I find that last uh, scene funny, as funny as it is sad. I think a crucial distinction there might be that. I mean, I've talked about finding Don Lope pitiful, but I don't pity him whatsoever in that last scene. Like, I do not, I am not, I do not no. feel bad about the, the guy dying. I do, I feel really bad for Tristana in that scene that she's been turned into yes. a, 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 a spiteful murderer. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, I, I, I was a little bit comparing apples and oranges, but I, I think I no, just want to, as you're saying, rather speak to that, Contrast, Like, it's not only the unconflicted vengeance I'm speaking about, but I, I think he does deeply care about what that, what that change did to her. It, it's almost like that setup of the last 30 minutes. Again, like, you're right. It, it is 
it is some miseries, but I didn't see it as a parade. I, I almost mm. saw it as like a, a it's really only a single thing that continues to compound on itself. Like it's not that she faces individual incidents. It, it accumulates it. You know, it starts as her being having this tumor in her leg and, you know, she's bedridden that um, and like very obviously sick. And then, you know, then it goes to the possibility of amputation, which I just need to point out the glee <laughs> that uh, Don Lope has during that scene where he's like feigning kindness. I, I, I like I really like that line where Don Lopez says all that charm and she's crippled forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or later when he says to her, you know, a lot of guys find women without legs really attractive. You know, there was this girl who was on crutches when I was younger. And uh, there were always some guys following her around. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> All right, I take it back. It's, mans- it's misanthropic. <laughs> but as much as that stuff is, is darkly funny, it, it really does, you know, maybe I'll go back to that word I was using earlier of, of agency, you know, which is obviously it's a double-edged sword. Um, but, like, I think that it is a triumphant moment when she's in the wheelchair and her feeling no need to say hello to anyone (laughs) or anything like that. Like, I I just don't feel even that death at the end as like, you know, a final spit on the grave or anything like that. It's it's. It's too earned. <laughs> right. That this Now I'm misanthropic. <laughs> right. It's like the end of Parasite. Uh, I mean, like, uh, one of the biggest yes. criticisms I hear about, I mean, spoiler alert, the end of Parasite, a, d- a dude murders sure. a dude. Is it justified? Some say yes. <laughs> but, uh, and people will say, like, I don't know if that was built up to or what. And I... I I mean, for me, like when I saw Parasite, my immediate thought the first time the guy was like, you know, I find poor people smelly. I thought this this <laughs> this guy's going to get killed by that dude. Yes, <laughs> it was yes. The first thing I thought. <laughs> so, that, yeah, there's there's absolutely that sense of like, yeah, of course she fakes calling the doctors to help him with his heart attack and then opens the windows into the cold, snowy night so that he dies more <laughs> fast and miserably. <laughs> Duh. But I, I don't know. I think I mean, and again, I. I Partly, I'm, I'm joking about it, partly because I find it funny. I genuinely think that, like, I mean, just just trying to imagine what her life looks like after that moment and who she is as a person and how she interfaces <laughs> with the world. Like, I I don't know, man. That's pretty miserable. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bummer, dude. I mean, I, I totally get it. Like, when she's in the wheelchair and she's just ignoring, like, Don Lope and doesn't care about him, there's absolutely a factor of, like, hell yeah, now you got the power. But on the other hand, I mean, like, that's not true. She never reclaims power from him at the end. She ends up taking power on his terms. Yeah, I mean, and we didn't even speak, you know, we've spoken a little bit about the wedding, but the fact that the... It's a it's a hard cut from her bearing her breasts to marriage, which like, you know, I guess you could say that is its own counter to that idea that even if she didn't, even if she, excuse me, killed him on his terms, she also very much now lives in a way that is you know, sacrilege in his face every day. Like, until his death, he's now bothered by this this woman who he 
thought he completely dominated her spirits in a way. I mean, you are right. Like, if if we're speculating what the rest of her life is like after this, <laughs> it's probably not real sunny. Yeah. But when it comes to these, like, minute aggressions, she ultimately has the upper hand. Yes. I, I mean, this is, this is just going to seem argumentative, but like then I like no, that brings us back to like, what is the upper hand? Like the upper hand in what sense? In that she makes him feel bad? I mean, sure. Or like that she makes him feel less powerful? Sure. But like, I mean, it doesn't seem like it helps her or makes her feel better. You know, I, on the other hand, the underlying kind of ideology of power that she's functioning under, again, like... That like, the fact that she has eventually totally subscribed to that power structure, I think you can still argue marks his victory as the ultimate one over her. Although, in fairness, I don't think murder was a part of his. Uh, no, it was because he's into dueling. <laughs> yeah, it's a total and complete <laughs> defeat. Yes, if you only think of this in the context of. I don't know, like, Don Lopez's entire existence is this illogical code. Like, that's, that is his yeah. constant life. So if you think of it only in relation to that, and this woman who we have seen the entire film, you know, uh, subservient to that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's totally fair, though. But I, I think that also opens up the suggestion that there was never... See, but maybe this makes it misanthropic. There was never any room for Tristana to actually be what she wanted in these current structures. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I don't know, like, see what I mean, folks? Like, you can't pin this movie down. (laughs) I, I don't know. I think I go back to what is Bunuel's view? And I don't think Bunuel's view is that humanity is unsalvageable. I, I, th- I think he is, uh, to use a cliche, a diagnoser of problems, not a prescriber of the cure. And uh, that depends a little bit on what you're watching. But I don't believe that prescribing problems necessarily makes you a cynic, makes you misanthropic. I think if Bunuel was misanthropic, then these films, and including Tristana would be so much less genuinely despairing about what becomes of the people in them, you know? I mean... Uh, well, I, I think uh, maybe another consideration, which is, which is getting into speculation a little bit and is only from my partial experience with uh, Bunuel's films, but I, I think it's interesting you posited, you know, or questioned whether does Bunuel feel society as a whole is unsalvageable? And, and I think you're right that that's not necessarily what he believes. He does have some of the attributes of a, of a diagnoser, but he also, I question whether he thinks society is salvageable now. I, I think it's Mm. Notable in direct contradiction to that, that at least in all of my experience with Boonwell and where it ends, he's not particularly interested 
in the future or the possibility of where these characters are going to go after. Like, uh, there's a lot of unceremonious endings, you know, whether you're pointing to uh, Exterminating Angel, wh- whether you're pointing to uh, Diary of a, a Chambermaid, Viridiana, you know. Begin- that, it, it, I, without thinking of a bunch of examples, of that, that, that feels right, though. That feels dead on. Um, that he doesn't conceive of his endings as, you know, open circuits to the future. Uh, maybe this is just my general distaste for the certain way that we look at, at filmmaking as representing or having this afterlife. But I struggle to say Boonwell is interested in a scope beyond the here and now for his characters. Maybe it's fair to say that if Bunuel was interested in suggesting a future, he would show you it. Yeah. Maybe that's a, a fair way to... Because I'm, as I'm sort of cycling through his endings in my head, the ones that jump forward in time tend to... Tristan is especially interesting to think about all this with, partly because its ending is an explicit uh, temporal reversal, right? Like, yes. uh, we get what at first seemed to be flashbacks, and the... but. You know, we hear the tolling of the bell as we see a bunch of scenes in reverse chronological order, brief scenes, brief shots from scenes from the past as we hear this reverse bell tolling. And what's interesting is that they're not at all proportional. The majority of them are from after the train. Some of them seem... To me, maybe this speaks to my lack of ability decoding this ending, but like almost arbitrary... And they, yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how to decode that, but I do know that it suggests a cyclical pattern or, or a, an emphasis on the sort of past is prologue ideas mm. of the film. I, I think you can make a, a very well-reasoned argument uh, about that. I, yeah, I, I was definitely left a little bit puzzled with what to make of that dream and but i i do want to sidebar and do you have any feelings about saturno he's an odd thing and i'm you know i'm tempted to say that he's you know uh, another metaphor for everyone's inability to communicate but his you know precision uh, you know like tristana understands everything that he does like uh, there's no there's no code there's no uh, you know he his sign language is is plain it's only words that can be concretely interpreted i, I i'm just I, i'm thinking of this right now but saturno it's he's slightly too big of a part for me to simply dismiss him as a part of machinations Yes, and his part was enlarged very deliberately from the novel. Well, I'm glad you bring this up, Mike, because I uh, I have a take on Saturno. Which is that I think that what Bunuel is getting across with Saturno, and this doesn't perfectly map onto the film, so it's, it's a debatable point, but I think what he's getting across is the deceptive power of language, specifically spoken language. Hmm. I think there is a suggestion there that human beings are much more 
bound up or represented by the 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 I'll say the vulgar physical than we would often like to admit to ourselves. Or, or, and when I say vulgar physical, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, I, I don't mean necessarily vulgarity in the extreme sense, but I mean the vulgar physical in the sense of the materialist. Maybe the material physical would be the best way to put it, but also vulgar in the sense that our sexual desires or our violent desires are much more important in driving our behavior than we would like to admit, and our words can obfuscate that, which is partly why it makes sense that Tristana eventually bears herself in an exhibitionist display to Saturno rather than anyone else, because she and Saturno have this understanding, this physical understanding with each other that is in no way impeded by language, by anyone else, which is maybe why the moment of her exhibition to Saturno frightens him so much because he immediately understands the damage on her psyche that's taken place. Mm. Or, if not that, the, the, the change in her moral compass or, or her, her, her demeanor or her whatever you want to call it. That's, that's kind of my take on generally on Saturno. I mean, parenthetically, there's always the question of how Bunuel depicts people who are differently abled. And that's a conversation that unfortunately I don't think we're equipped to fully get into here now. Um, but it's, it's certainly something worth thinking about, um, um, both in his, I think, occasional, you could say arguably reductions of people who are differently abled into a symbolic status and in his ability to, on the other hand, often sympathize and, and socially account for people who don't fit into our standard notions of a human functioning in society. That's, that's just a sidebar. I just think that's worth acknowledging if we're going to talk about Saturno. Yeah, no, I mean, that is, that is totally fair. And, and you know, uh, beyond the social conventions of now... I don't think Bunuel is is that interested <laughs> with the <laughs> exact implications of you know differently abled people you know yeah. beyond the well, symbolism yeah. beyond the the chance for a joke but not necessarily in relation to someone being differently abled but here is something that jars you. <laughs> Here's something that you don't expect right. to see. It's a, you know, it's a prosthetic right. leg on a bed. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Take it how you will. I, I think but... he'll often, <laughs> I think, I think he'll often move between, um, 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 that kind of, I'll, I'll speak, I'll speak because I'm more sympathetic to Benwell than this. I'll, I'll speak for his critics. Uh, uh, he'll alternate between that callousness or, 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 or reductiveness towards people of different abilities. Um, and it, often in the same movie, even, between a deep sympathy and social understanding of them, which makes it very difficult to talk about and, and resolve. Will, is there, is there anything you think we, we didn't cover that you wanted to get to today? That's, that's kind of the, the long and short of it. I, I mean, the one thing... I mean, you could either, you could spend like 10 hours on this, but I, I, I think 
the thing that I'd like to emphasize without just going into like case by case by case by case by case examples um, is that there's so much to discover in reading Benwell's camera positioning and camera movements and even, and this is much less frequent and, and a lot subtler, but his sound design decisions, for example, he'll have dialogue run in, in an L cut, i.e. A, a dialogue from the previous scene will run into the beginning of the next scene and yes. that will form a commentary on the entire scene that follows or the reverse a J cut where uh, the dialogue from the next scene bleeds into the end of the previous scene. And those decisions are extremely purposeful because he is more than happy to just show the dialogue in the shot and then cut when the dialogue is done being spoken. There's so many things like that going on. And, and so I'd like to emphasize that I really want people who watch Benwell to, to, to engage with him on that level. Because I think all, uh, the sociopolitical stuff is, is maybe more urgent to, to interact with as you're watching this stuff and talking about it. And the surrealist stuff is more overt and, and more famous when you're talking about it. But I would say that that's much more, I'll say subtle, um, stylistic approach he takes is tougher to get into, but can really enhance your enjoyment of the film and, and, and can even help with reading it a lot and reading its intellectual ideas better. That's, that's my, I don't know. Do you think it's so boring? Do you think we convinced anyone to watch it? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I I think we have. I mean, it's 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 weird because it, you know, it, I I think what's a little bit stranger about some of the the later Boonwell. I I I suppose this would uh, slot into. I, I mean, it's a little bit later in his career. Is that you know, it, it is you know thematically debaucherous, but it's not necessarily the energy. <laughs> Like, the energy is a lot more subdued. It's a lot more, um, you know, it's a lot more, uh, I don't want to say that it's more interested in dialectics, because he was certainly interested in in that earlier, but I think that the filmmaking is... uh, no, because that's reductive too. I, I, I th- I'll instead pivot and say that I, I think you're you're right that the the way we talk about the formal language of of Boonwell is um, you know is is too often uh, focused in in certain aspects of, of spectacle, and 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 I think that yeah, that's what makes this film a, a lot more rich in, in a way is. Um, is you know not only that sound design that you're you're speaking of, but um, you know th- that wonderful example you gave of the the two avenues, and you know you, you not only get that you know a good non sequitur, but I would have taken the other. I wish we took the other one, <laughs> yeah. but the the switch between subjective and objective is is the type of thing that only with close reading. Do you notice those things? And, you know, I, I kind of yeah. vaguely discussed uh, some of the ways he is defining the uh, the uh, this certain, you know, almost dissection of, of spaces in, in this as, 
you know, like uh, dislocated, even even feels ill, uh, very ill-equipped as we continue talking about this. Right. And, you know, I just um, I, I think that he's someone who's worth a lot of uh, further study. And I I hope our conversation does, you know, um, motivate someone to give some of his some of his films a try. Um, yeah, dive in. I was joking. He's not boring. <laughs> he is not boring. He's he's confusing sometimes. Sure. Wait, I I asked already. I I, I can obviously. I might put this before uh, your final thoughts. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Tristana before we move into the last bits? Uh no. I'll. I, I mean. This this is redundant, but I'll just say I I just think in spite of how heavily intellectualized our discussions about it are, I just think it is in the kind of classical sense of the word a really beautiful movie. Not only in the aforementioned visual sense of its lovely color design, but in the elegance uh, 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 through which its plot develops, uh, the, the way that it will reveal details whose importance isn't obvious uh, or, or significant until later, in the way that it's, all of its characters have such a depth of psychology as well as a mystery to their behavior. There's none of these characters who you can fully chart out their their full personality and intentions in spite of, as we've said many times, the fact that the film and the dialogue in Benoel are, are quite plain spoken, at least through their words, about representing people. It's, it's, I mean, maybe this is just my predilection for slow and boring cinema, but it's what makes it, if not my favorite Benoel, one of my very favorite Benoels, that it is just so willfully limited and, and gentle and, and such a smooth experience without sacrificing one iota of its political vigor. It's good. It's a good movie. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, I think that's a great encapsulation. Um, on, on this uh, show, I like to ask the, the guest, you know, what would you recommend to them next? You know, if they, if they go watch this movie, guys, go watch this movie. Um, what would you recommend next, whether it be from Boonwell, whether it be from contemporaries, uh, predecessors, uh, books? It can be kind of anything, but I just want to yeah. give recommendations. Yeah, I would say if you have not seen Tristana and you've listened to this full podcast and you think, that's that's interesting, it seems a bit dry to me, or or it doesn't have some of the things I'm personally interested in, Benwell 4, and you haven't seen much Benwell, then I would suggest first checking out Belle de Jour, which we've already mentioned as being a really fitting companion of the film. They, they feed into each other really well, uh, uh, not only because... It has Catherine Deneuve, but certainly in part because of that. I, I really love Belle de Jour, and it's got crazy things going on about how it represents dreams and reality, and and it has a toe. Its toe is dipped a little bit deeper into that surrealist pool than Tristana, 
And Benwell in general is is really good to check out stuff like that obscure object of desire or L if you're interested in sort of following this um, um, less surrealist tack that I've been seeing a lot of his films have. And they, again, thematically, all of these and Tristana work together extremely well. And Benwell is totally one of those filmmakers where the more of him you see, the better you understand where he's coming from and the, and the more you can get out of his films. Um, rather than that, I'll, I'll, I'll switch gears to one of the filmmakers that Bunuel admired most was Renoir, who was already mentioned. And I was going to mention specifically the rules of the game as a great jumping off point to compare to Tristana and to a lot of Bunuel's work. Uh, and, and if you are already interested in Bunuel and or Renoir, then Diary of a Chambermaid, besides being a really good, really, really good uh, Bunuel film, is there's also an American adaptation by Renoir that, that I quite like. And that is a really interesting point of comparison between the two. I wouldn't put it at the peak of either of their output, but it is really interesting to watch how two directors in markedly different circumstances, because, I mean, not least of which because the Renoir version of Diary of a Chambermaid was made in Hollywood with all of the caveats that entails. But it shows how circumstance and style, even between two directors who we could honestly interchange a lot of our descriptions of their style with each other, but they still approach things really differently. Finally, uh, thank you again to our sponsor, uh, Mubi. You can uh, try a free trial, a free 30-day trial of Mubi by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that's mubi.com slash filmstage. And uh, to end the show, Will, where can we find you uh, these days, and you can plug anything you'd like right now. On the online space, right now, you can find me on Twitter, at Sad Hill Will. If you want to look at the podcast that I run, that's on Twitter as at FilmFormally, or you can just go to FilmFormally.com, and we've got all our episodes with show notes there. We have an episode on the podcast coming out on Tuesday about montage in pre-code Hollywood cinema. I mentioned it earlier, and that's with Peter Labuza. So... Come and check that one out. That's a, that's, that one's a pretty good starting point, especially if you're into uh, film history and, and sort of under the radar but still mainstream filmmaking techniques. So. Oh, nice. Um, well, I'm looking forward to those. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell. Uh, on, I'm on Letterboxd. I don't know if I'm going to get back into writing things at length. Um, if you would be interested in that uh, in relation to the Patreon, just let me know. Um, I have re- had a review go up shortly before this episode about Olivier Assayas' uh, Wasp Network, which is now available on Netflix. And uh, the next film stage episode will be The Vest of Night with guest Robert Daniels. And uh, the next intermission episode will be uh, Company, the original cast album with guest uh, Kyle Turner. And I know 
absolutely oh, nothing about musicals and he knows everything about musicals. So that should be should be fun. And I'll try not to make a fool of myself. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode of Intermission. Uh, we'll see you next week. My pleasure. Bye bye. So long. Got me a movie. Shoot!